you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us on this Giving Tuesday a chance for us to come together as a KPCC community and supporting the work here. Thank you for your support. We appreciate it. And what, of course, is a bread and butter issue for us here at KPCC is mental health care and the huge challenge that we face with all the needs. You know, homelessness is sort of, you know, it's front and center, but the provision of mental health services extends into so many areas of our lives here in Southern California, but there is a shortage of mental health professionals and with us to talk about that challenge and ways LA County is attempting to deal with it is the former director of Los Angeles County's Department of Mental Health, currently professor of psychiatry at UCSC and UCLA, Dr. Jonathan Sharon, who yes, joined us just yesterday uh, on another topic, Dr. Sharon, thank you so much for coming back with us to talk about this today. Um, We know that 28 percent of the positions at the County Department of Mental Health are vacant, but that's part of a much larger national story, isn't it? Yeah, it is, Larry, and thanks uh, a lot for having me back on so quickly. Um, It's uh, this is a a national issue. It's a local issue. Um, And I would say certainly that uh, you know, the pandemic and other stressors on the populations have um, exacerbated what is, uh, you know, a, a problem now and, and is a, is really kind of an existential threat uh, to the field. And I, I, I believe you'll have other guests, but I mean, if you want, I could say a few things on the top of my mind. Yeah, please. Yeah, please do. Uh, you know, um, salary is obviously critical. Um, and when you look at uh, the medical field, the salary for mental health workers tends to be on the lower side, although that's improving. But um, as important, if not more important, and picking up from yesterday, what is the work? Uh, the work in the front lines is a lot of charting, billing, reporting. Um, way too much time on that as opposed to care. There's also issues of safety and flexibility. Uh, you know, when I was uh, in the department, uh, I would go into the street, do street psychiatry, and develop a pretty significant program that's going to grow very unpredictable settings um and uh you know safety uh is an issue um and especially with justice reform in fact uh we have made available bulletproof vests to some of our staff who are in the streets and doing crisis response the other thing is um the flexibility telework is one of the things working from home uh that when it works for clients is a major uh innovation and we uh, embraced that uh, with the pandemic. We need to think about optimizing the quality of work, the life uh, uh, experience of individuals who are doing some of the most difficult, uh, you know, service um, in the health and human services. And I'd like to think that the silver linings from all the stressors um, of recent times um, are going to push us in the right direction. If we don't get the memo now, that mental health needs to be prioritized and showcased across uh, our wonderful land, and I don't think we ever will. So, and let me just be blunt, because we are a bit short on time, but if someone uh, coming out of school with a master's in social work or um, master certification, marriage family therapist, uh, or someone, a PhD psychologist, and they have an option of working with a, um, a, a generally you know, functional person who's dealing with um, stressors in their lives, anxiety, um, you know, depression, or working with someone who might be living on the street in extreme psychological distress, uh, dealing with bipolar illness or um, with schizophrenia or with severe drug addiction. Um, 
I'm sure for many people, there's going to be a preference for working in that, you know, perceived safer environment where, you know, maybe the results are are more consistent than you're going to see working with a more challenged population. So how do you how do you recruit given the very kinds of challenges you outlined? Well, your points are are very well taken, Larry, and I think um, ring true. Uh, you know, you can make more money um, and you can have, uh, I would say, a more predictable, safer and less stressful uh, work environment in um, doing private practice and, and the like. But it's conversations like this that make me uh, think back and cherish the Department of Mental Health because mission and mission-oriented people are the ones that, uh, that hold up uh, the public system. So what I would like to say, and I believe the Board of Supervisors has been extremely supportive in this realm, is that mission-oriented people who want to take care of the sickest individuals ought to be recruited, and they ought to be getting at least the equivalent compensation and uh, financially and um, issues of, of, uh, of safety um, should be paramount. All right. Um, in that way, we can bring the right people in and expand a workforce that's desperately needed. We're talking with Dr. Jonathan Sharon, who was the director of the L.A. County Department of Mental Health, now professor of psychiatry at USC and UCLA, also with us from the L.A. County Department of Mental Health, deputy director of quality outcomes and training, Debbie Innes-Gomberg. Thank you so much for being with us. What are some of the strategies the department is employing to try and recruit and to develop new mental health professionals. Yeah, Larry, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. You know, there there are several things that we're employing and working with the Department of Human Resources at the county level. The first one, which which you really can't get in private practice, are financial incentives. And we have a a variety of those, including things like loan repayment, uh, which is a good uh, recruitment and retention strategy. So if you work for the Department of Mental Health, or one of its contractors for uh, one to two years, you will get a certain amount of money um, to repay your student loans. We have a stipend program that we just brought back um, that was uh, stopped during the pandemic. And this is really to recruit students that are graduating, mostly social work and psychology students, although we do have some nurse practitioners as well and marriage and family therapy therapy students, that if they come to the work, come to work for the Department of Mental Health, they'll be able to get a $18,500 stipend. Uh, In addition to that, we have a number of programs for psychiatry around loan forgiveness. And then then kind of next is that we really want to work with schools about the value of working in public mental health. And this is something that Dr. Sharon uh, just spoke to. And it's really a chance to give back to the community. It's one of the more unique places where you can work in diverse settings in outpatient clinics, doing hybrid uh, in-person as well as telemental health. Uh, you can work in courts, juvenile justice, uh, healthcare settings, uh, and of course, doing homeless outreach, homeless engagement, and psychiatric mobile response. Mm-hmm. So working for the public mental health system is really an opportunity to give back to the community. As, as- uh, I was just going to say, as, as someone who actually started graduate work in psychology myself, I feel like this is a field that really requires a calling. It's not like working in retail or, or working in, in other kinds of jobs where you get trained, you can do the work and be effective. It, there really needs to be, uh, Dr. Sharon described it in this case, as mission-driven work. So how do you identify those individuals who have that calling, who buy into that mission, and that you can cultivate? and sort of ease their way into doing this sort of public service work? Yeah, I I was one of those people. I started uh, with the county working in the L.A. County Jail in 1992. I thought I would get licensed and go into private practice. But what I found is that working as part of a team, which is very difficult in private practice, as well as being, you know, working with some of the most impoverished people that don't have a lot of opportunity was incredibly rewarding. Uh, and here I am uh, in 2022. Oh. Yeah. And, and are there ways that you can sort of formalize how you cultivate those folks? Yeah, I, I think if, if you give people a sense of purpose in terms of what they're doing uh, in their job and the ability to really understand the impact that they're having, I think that that goes a long way. 
along with you know the work environment um, of, it's one of teamwork and one of support for one's professional development uh, and those are the sorts of things I think we need to communicate much better in uh, in schools and in, you know, on social media to be able to attract people uh, and, and really bring something out I mean the other thing we're looking at are pipeline programs that maybe start uh, in high school and community colleges All right. I want to thank you both so much for being with us because, of course, having mental health professionals available to work with the people that are in need of our community are absolutely essential. And it undergirds so many different efforts to address the serious needs that people have. That's Debbie Innes Gomberg of the L.A. County Department of Mental Health and Dr. Jonathan Sharon, professor of psychiatry, USC and UCLA. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We've, of course, tried to stay on top of what's happening with the economy of Southern California as we've gone through nearly three years of pandemic, all the ups and downs that have happened as a result of that. We know here in Southern California, where there's a huge hospitality sector, it was hit particularly hard. There were a lot of job losses in that area. And Beacon Economics, uh, the firm, has just come out with a report looking at where we stand in the job market. And joining us, founding partner at Beacon and director of the UC Riverside School of Business, Center for Economic Forecasting and Development, Chris Thornburg. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Larry. It's great to be back. Uh, So where are we on the jobs? Have a lot of those jobs that were lost, particularly in hospitality, come back? (laughs) You know, I I hear the term a lot, uh, recover. Oh, Jobs in the state have just gotten back to where they were pre-pandemic. Ergo, we're just now starting to recover. <laughs> and that's not really a correct interpretation of, of what's going on out there. In fact, what, what really happened over the course of the pandemic that has had such a phenomenal impact on local labor markets, but really labor markets across the United States, was a huge retirement. A couple million people chose the pandemic to go ahead and leave the workforce. They were largely already on the edge of that. Um, And as a result of that, when the economy did start coming back, there simply wasn't the labor supply available. Um, Today in California, for example, labor supply is is just about the same as it was pre-pandemic, even though that was, you know, multiple years ago, typically labor force is growing. So if you look at the number of jobs, say, in hospitality or restaurants, they're significantly below where they were pre-pandemic. But it's not because there's a lack of demand. Quite the opposite. Most restaurants and hotels will tell you they're understaffed. There's just no one to hire. Unemployment rates across California, across the United States, are at or near record low levels. Um, and, and that is really the biggest issue holding our economy back. Yeah. Now, for some of those people who were on the cusp of retirement, did it earlier because of the pandemic, given the rate of inflation, given some of those folks are going to have some of their retirement funds in the stock market, seeing what's happening on those two fronts, is that going to convince a significant percentage of those people to go back to work? Well, a couple of things here. First of all, we have to um, acknowledge that inflation is being caused by consumers. It's not being, it's not hurting consumers. 
And I realize that's not necessarily the topic of what we're talking about this morning, but we have to keep in mind that what happened during the pandemic was the federal government phenomenally overreacted. $6.5 trillion of fiscal stimulus backed up by $5 trillion of quantitative easing. Um, that money flooded into the economy and really has continues to sit out there. Uh, take, for example, household cash balances. Prior to the pandemic, all American households together had about a trillion dollars on hand. Today, it's over $4 trillion. So uh, Americans are sitting on piles of cash that the government gave them. They're trying to spend that money but are finding that, well, the economy just can't meet that level of demand. And, of course, prices are going up in the meantime. It's a function of strong demand. As for the stock market, let's keep in mind that while it has come down, uh, it's still 22 23% above where it was prior to the pandemic. So really, stock prices are only coming off these excessive stimulus highs that we saw a year and a half ago. In other words, people still feel pretty rich out there, and that means they're not going to come back, short of, of course, really being paid to come back, which is exactly what we're seeing. You know, one of the manifestations of anti-labor markets are increasing wages. And right now, actually, workers are seeing their earnings in, uh, rise at about a 30-year high. And by the way, the biggest pace of earnings increases we're seeing in the United States here in California are actually for lower-skilled, lower-paid workers. So, you know, the good news about labor shortages is it's helping income inequality. The bad news about labor shortages, if you're trying to run a restaurant or a hotel, it's become a lot more expensive. Chris Thornburg of Beacon Economics, founding partner with us and director of UCR's uh, Economic Forecasting and Development Program at the School of Business. Uh, also with us, William Lee, chief economist at the Milken Institute, an economic think tank based in Santa Monica. Uh, thanks so much for being back with us. Um, do you concur with, with Chris's analysis of where we are with jobs? Yeah, Chris and his colleagues at Beacon do a fantastic job. Uh, they're a very high-quality research firm, so I, you know, I have to say, you know, it's very hard to say things that are wrong with their report, right? But, uh, the, the, but I think I, I perhaps a slightly different perspective uh, might allow the interpretation of the data to get a richer uh, uh, view. And that is, you know, Chris is absolutely right that um, the the problem right now with a lot of sectors, especially leisure, hospitality, and the entertainment industry in Los Angeles and California in general, is that they don't have enough people filling the slots that are available. The job vacancies uh, have gone way up, and, and the ability of companies to hire the right people has gone down tremendously. And, and Chris is absolutely right. Uh, a lot of people just feel like they don't really want to come back to work because it's just not worthwhile to take these jobs because they're such so-called crappy dead-end jobs. Um, and I think one of the things that we've learned during the pandemic is that companies have really restructured themselves. They have really added software. Uh, they've added uh, different ways of doing businesses. Restaurants have opened get ghost kitchens. They've done delivery services. They've focused on profit centers. And that restructuring of business has really changed the composition of the kind of jobs that are out there. Um, I've called this uh, coming recession probably the first white-collar recession we've seen in, in decades because the blue-collar jobs are really in very high demand. Um, you know, if, you, if you want to work at an Amazon warehouse, you have to have skills now that are more than just having brawn and the ability to drive a forklift. You have to be able to operate the robotics console or else you'd be very good on rollerblades. You know, one of the other. <laughs> uh, and, and, and whereas the white-collar workers um, are, are really in, in less demand, especially the low-level, entry-level, low-training-type um, um, uh, uh, stuff like you know, data prep. Uh, data data uh, organizers, uh, the stuff who the kind of guys who who had uh, clerical jobs to organize the data so that the the uh, the senior level of financial analysts can give the customer uh, a, a strategy for lowering taxes. So, Bill, how's that work being done then without those white collar folks? I'm sorry. How are how are those jobs being done without having those white collar folks? The, a lot of these white-collar jobs are being substituted for by technology. Okay. Sale terminals have really reduced the need to organize data. Uh, a lot of the data entry stuff that was done to put stuff into a digital form for the software of the uh, accounting firm to use is now done automatically. So, and, so, and, and even in restaurants, 
the cashier is being uh, in some ways replaced by um, the, the the smart checkouts, right? I mean, the the waiter essentially tallies up your bill almost immediately, and the need for a cashier has disappeared as soon as you you flash your your um, your, your Google Pay or Apple Pay or or, uh, or or credit card. So 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 what what I'm saying is that the skill level that's needed for a lot of the jobs uh, has gone up, which is why wages have gone up. Um, but but the number of people who feel that these jobs are worth uh, uh, coming out and, and, and applying for has gone down because a lot of the payments uh, for staying at home have gone up. A lot of the, the subsidies that we receive have enabled people to say, I, I'm really going to hold out for a better job, something that will further my career. And, and so Chris is absolutely right to say the, 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 the size of the labor force has shrunken uh, tremendously. If you look at something that economists look at called the employment to population ratio, that's come down steadily since 2000, um, and which is to say, given the population, which is a, a constant, uh, it grows at a well-known rate, the number of people who are being employed has gone down relative to the population year after year. How much of now in the uh, it, 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 for example, it used to be 65 percent back in 2000, uh, and now uh, in pre-pandemic uh, uh, era, it was about 61 percent. And right now, uh, it's about 60%. So, so we still haven't come back to the 61% uh, uh, level that we saw pre-pandemic. Bill, uh, let me ask you, how much of that is related to the aging of the population? That, I assume that has some degree of effect here. Well, a lot of people have retired early, and that's really part of the issue. Uh, the, the, Chris's explanation that, well, stock market wealth has really incentivized a lot of people to take early retirement. Well, that only applies to the upper half of the population. Uh, the lower 60% of the, of the uh, income distribution don't have that much in the way of stock market wealth, uh, and, but they do have a lot of uh, other subsidies that they can apply for, uh, government health programs, a lot of California subsidies that enable them to take the early retirement and live quite well. Uh, so, uh, but, but more importantly, it's the prime age worker 25 to 54 year olds who've decided they can wait it out for and hold out for a better job. And that's really one of the issues is that the service sectors uh, are not getting the same supply of workers coming out as, as, as they had before. Love to get questions from our listeners about where we stand with the Southern California job market. You can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. You can also call us with your questions or your thoughts about where we are with the Southern California job picture. 866-893-5722. That's the call-in, not the fundraising number. 866-893-KPCC. I look forward to hearing your questions for our guests, economist Bill Lee, chief economist at the Milken Institute, Chris Thornburg, founding partner, Beacon Economics, and director of the Center for Economic Forecasting and Development at the UC Riverside School of Business, 866-893-5722. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Thank you so much for your generous support for Air Talk. You know, we appreciate you so much. We know without you, 
There is no KPCC. There's no in-depth conversation about these issues. There are no wonderful guests like we are so fortunate to be able to bring you. And they're they're so generous with their time. You know, the professionals that come on that share their expertise do it because they care about these issues and know the kind of audience that that they're addressing when they come on air talk. And that's a testament to you as a listener. Right now we're talking about the Southern California economy and specifically. Specifically, the job segment of that with Bill Lee, chief economist at Milken and Chris Thornburg, founding partner at Beacon Economics. And if you have questions for our guests, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and your first name. We appreciate it very much. Uh, let me share some listener questions. Um, Ravener or Ravener tweets at AirTalk, I'm skeptical about this report. Even if true, many good people, myself included, continue to struggle to find a good paying job and career advancement. And similarly, Suzanne in Culver City says, my son and I are both trying to find a job right now, but we often don't hear back from any applications. Chris, uh, this is something that we hear anecdotally whenever we talk about jobs on air talk. So are are these specific categories of jobs for which there isn't a demand? I, you know, again, the anecdotes, right? We don't understand the specific circumstances of these folks, what kind of job they're looking for versus what they're actually finding. What I have to do, of course, is again, is, is look at these aggregate statistics on the labor market. We haven't. It shows the unemployment rate uh, at record low levels, earnings increases at record high levels, job openings at record high levels. So overall, clearly the labor market is incredibly tight right now. Um, I, I, I have no idea what happens with these specific people and their particular job search. What I would recommend to anybody um, and indeed, one of the big conversations I have with economic development professionals is the idea that, that now more than ever, this is the time to, to go out, explore your options, look for training programs, um, to look for, for, for career counselors, people who can help you make the right decisions about getting into jobs. My, my guess is maybe these folks are just not looking in the right place uh, because, again, there's no doubt at the aggregate level uh, we are suffering from labor shortage. Well, and we see the help wanted signs certainly in retail, in hospitality, in the restaurant sector. There's no question there. But but in, in some of these other kinds of jobs where perhaps there's more automation and there's still people looking to do that kind of work, there, there aren't the positions. Janet in Culver City emailed, pre-pandemic articles were being published uh, that stated the U.S. had too many restaurants chasing consumer dollars. If there were too many restaurants prior to COVID, why would the number of restaurants and thus the number of jobs go back to pre-pandemic levels if there were already predictions that were too many? Um, and I read that sort of contradictory because the issue is that there are are jobs going unfilled in restaurants. So maybe I'm not, I'm not uh, understanding that. Bill Lee, can you speak to Janet's question? Sure, Janet, that raises a very interesting question, which is to say, why is it that the recovery in jobs has been so uneven? Um, if, just to give you some perspective, right now, if you look at the total number of job, jobs that were created, it's, two, it's now 2 million above uh, where we were uh, before the pandemic. But it's very, very uneven. Professional services are way above where we were. Manufacturing's recovered to where we were before, but but the restaurant issue is something that's a big uh, 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 deficit where we're almost uh, 1.2 million jobs short of where we were before in leisure and hospitality, and and that goes to say the old style restaurants may be going out of business because people really want a different kind of experience when they go out. They want to have either the top end restaurants or they want to go to fast food and delivery, and and the middle uh, has been hollowed out. So the restaurant jobs that were available before have turned uh, and changed, and that the, the way that restaurants are doing business now, as I said before, has changed. The, the, the use of ghost kitchens and delivery services has increased the demand for, for fast-order cooks that are able to work ghost kitchens 
and not traditional restaurants. So if you're looking for a job as a chef, you really have to be able to work many different kinds of menus that are needing to consolidate in ghost kitchens as opposed to uh, being a waiter in a, in a middle, uh, middle-level restaurant. So, Bill, how much training are places doing now? If you need to train a short-order cook, are places doing that in a way they wouldn't have done in the past because there was an abundance of short-order cooks? Great question, uh, Larry. Uh, there's a huge number of job openings, um, but the pace of hiring has not gone up commensurately. In other words, the companies that have these job openings are being very careful in who they select. Uh, and, and they want to have someone, a worker who's very adaptable, able to learn quickly, and able to adapt to different circumstances. If, you, if you're going to tell a worker, I've been a short order cook for the last 10 years, I flipped burgers better than anybody else, you're not going to be hired because they they have machines to do flipping burgers. They want you to be able to prepare salads. They want you to be able to prepare seafood. And that's the kind of flexibility they want in a worker. And a lot of people are not able to do that. At least not the wage that they're offering. Chris, how much do you think that with this mismatch between openings and employees is going to further drive up wages in what have traditionally been um, uh, minimum wage jobs? Um, oh, I think quite a bit. Uh, look, the, the reality is this is all functionally driven by demographic changes. It all goes back to the boomer generation who all came out of families of, you know, 12 kids, and the parents were so traumatized by the fact that their parents often forgot their names that they all went out and had 1.2 kids. <laughs> and, and the net result is our population pyramid has turned into a population column. Now, every time a, a boomer retires, we get one Gen Z coming in the workforce, uh, albeit quite reluctantly, one might say. Um, so there's very little, uh, shall we say, light at the end of this particular tunnel for employers. We've um, shorted some sort of major fix to uh, the immigration system, which, given the chaos in D.C. right now, seems uh, at best far-fetched to imagine happening anytime in the near future. So I think employers need to recognize that labor shortages are here and here to stay, and they have to continue to learn how to do more with less. Uh, that is to say, do the kind of uh, capital investments, the labor-saving technology that is described. Um, or equivalently, um, uh, when it comes to economic development, uh, the conversation has to move from this jobs, jobs, jobs paradigm where you're, where you're paying corporations to open facilities in your neck of the woods to Workers, 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 how do we get more people to want to live in California? I mean, our fair state has the simplest solution of, of most any state when it comes to labor shortages. We only need to build housing, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> only. Yeah, sounds so simple. We're, we're struggling with that. John and Carson emailed, uh, what do they think about reports that the inflation is being caused more by corporations and large businesses keeping prices high and raking in record profits? Bill? I would love to be able to say that's true, but that's absolutely false. Um, the, the record inflation we're having today is because people want to buy stuff and there's not enough stuff out there. Um, and the reason why people want to buy so much stuff is because they've got stuff in their pocket to spend, um, and especially the upper half of the population. I think if you ask anybody who is having the second job trying to make ends meet, they're not spending as much as they did before. Uh, and so I think it's a, it's a rich man's problem to say, oh, gee, I don't have enough to stuff to buy, so I'm willing to pay higher prices. The airline ticket goes up, I'm still going to go on my vacation. So these are, are issues where demand really is, in the United States at least, the cause of both the inflation. In Europe, it's the other way around. It's the lack of the high cost of energy, the, the, the lack of supply, the, the grain shortages the, that have been caused by the war in Ukraine. This, the right. in Europe and, and other parts of the world is from the supply side. But here in the United States, it's truly mainly demand. Gentlemen, thank you so much. That's William Lee, Milken Institute Chief Economist, and Chris Thornburg, founding partner at Beacon Economics. As I promised yesterday on Air Talk, today we're going to update you on the protests that are taking place in China. 
Foxconn factory, uh, near universities in China where students have taken to the streets, and what's become their emblem of protest, a blank white sheet of paper, because uh, how do you censor that? But I want to hear from Chinese-American listeners. I really want to hear from you um, how you are following what's going on in China, particularly if, if you yourself uh, emigrated from there, but um, if, if it's your family members who came and you grew up here in, in the U.S., that's fine, too. Also, if you have any connection with family members there, I'd be very interested in hearing from you about how you're taking all this in. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-KPECC, or you can also email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your first name and location. With me is NPR China Affairs correspondent John Ruwich. John, thank you so much for for joining us. What is the latest on these widespread protests? Sure. Um, the latest seems to be that the uh, the police and the authorities are starting to crack down on them. Uh, we've seen over the past 24 hours, you know, in areas where demonstrations were, for instance, in Beijing and in Shanghai, police just flooding these areas with police cars and patrols. Uh, in some parts of, of these towns and other areas, they have started fencing off um, streets where protests had taken place. So, for instance, there's a street in Shanghai called uh, Urumqi road. It's named after the city where the fire was that sort of sparked all of these um, all of these protests. Uh, it's been totally cordoned off. There are checkpoints uh, and people going in and out uh, have to show that they live in the area to, to be allowed in there. Uh, been Police have been checking IDs, of course, calling people to warn them not to go out to protest, ask them where they've been. And there are reports that folks are having their phones checked when they're in these areas, just spot checked by police, you know, asking them to delete pictures and whatnot. So the the number of protests has gone down uh, and they're certainly clamping down at this stage. And uh, are we seeing um, a rise in the number of arrests or they're, they're just trying to get ahead of it by taking away the spaces for people to gather? Yeah, it's hard to gauge the number of people that have been arrested and whether or not that that number is going up. There certainly have been, you know, images online, videos, uh, anecdotes of people who have been, you know, hauled off, put in police buses, taken taken off to police cars. Really tough to get a handle on what the numbers are, though, to be honest with you. All right. And uh, you mentioned about the the location where there was a fire and and um, the perception yes. that it was the covid rules that really kept aid from being able to get there and save the lives of the people that were killed in the fire. Now, my recollection, that's that's a weaker community there. Is that right? Yeah, the fire was in the city of Urumqi, which is the capital of Xinjiang, this region in the far west of China that is home to the Uyghurs. Uh, Reportedly, you know, that building, the area where the building is, uh, was heavily populated by Uyghurs. I don't believe Uyghurs make up the majority in the city of Urumqi at this stage uh, anymore, but they do in Xinjiang more broadly. And, uh, of course, for them, it's uh, much more challenging to protest because of what they're facing from the Chinese government. But um, what's your sense of, you know, the other residents of that city coming out and showing their support like that? You know, it's pretty extraordinary. It it does. does, The fire happened on Thursday and the residents of the city came out and protested in front of the city government on Friday. Uh, That area, you know, Xinjiang largely has been under lockdown since August. So we're talking about just restrictions on top of restrictions for month after month. And, you know, the fact that it boiled over in Xinjiang and then took off in the rest of the country just speaks to how frustrated a large swath of the population is now with this sort of never ending policy. Remember, zero COVID, which is now called dynamic zero COVID, started three years ago, basically, when the pandemic got, got underway. And uh, it worked for a while. And then Omicron really threw the Omicron variant threw a wrench into the into the into the mix. And uh, the party has had a hard time. Uh, for whatever reason, adapting and changing the policy. And it's just meant lockdown after lockdown around the country. So, yeah, the fact that that 
Han Chinese and others within Xinjiang and then spreading more widely are out on the streets just speaks to the uh, the level of anger, the level of frustration with the policy. And what, what's been the international response to this? Because, of course, uh, global stocks have been lower in, in response to this. Yeah. China's COVID policies are, are being criticized. Um, I can't remember if it's the IMF or who it was that was yesterday. There was some international body protesting. So what what is the response? Response to what's happening there? Well, there have been protests outside of China that have popped up on college campuses and in front of Chinese embassies and consulates. Uh, a lot of actually uh, Chinese citizens who are studying and working in those countries have showed up. The U.S. government has been very cautious in its comment yesterday. Uh, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby was asked about it at a briefing, and he said, look, the White House is watching what's happening with interest. It's you know not basically up to the U.S. government to speak for these people. They're speaking for themselves, and the U.S. government supports the right to protest. So tread, treading very carefully on sort of in terms of supporting there. The NSC uh, did have a statement earlier that, that said, you know, the zero COVID policy is flawed effectively. Uh, and, uh, you know, backing, I guess, what, what you were saying, if it, if it was the IMF or whoever else it was saying this yeah. policy has, has led to problems um, and is in need of change. John Wurwich joining us. He's NPR's China Affairs correspondent. And if you have a question for him about the protests that are taking place across China and now the increasing crackdown of Chinese authorities, we're at 866-893-KPECC. Or you can email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and your first name. Uh, John, how widespread is is the... Is the, um, the COVID-19 no contact policy, is this just in certain regions of the country that are seeing spikes or or even any COVID cases? Uh, How how widely um, implemented is this? You're talking about the zero COVID policy, The zero COVID policy, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Zero COVID is, well, so it's a series of policies and measures that are designed sort of at their most basic level to keep the virus out of China and to stop it from spreading, right? So the borders, for instance, remain tight. It's hard to get a visa to get into China. Once you get into China, everybody who enters the country is sent off to quarantine for for eight days, for seven to 10 days, basically. So in that respect, it's a nationwide thing, right? also, domestically, uh, the the idea of keeping the pandemic in check is something that's animating this. And where there are cases that pop up, those are the, those are the areas that get locked down. Now they're trying to move from a made sort of large sledgehammer approach to you know locking down entire cities to doing being more targeted, closing off uh, communities, apartment buildings, that type of thing. Uh, but the checks and uh, surveillance is nationwide. You know, wherever you are in China these days, there are requirements for getting COVID tests either every 48 hours or 72 hours. To enter buildings, you need to show proof that you've had that COVID test and that it's negative. To get on a train, you've had you've had to do this. I think that rule has changed recently. Uh, but wherever you travel, you you know, for instance, you're if if there's cases nearby, you know, you you run the risk of getting thrown into a some sort of a quarantine facility or told you can't leave that area for seven days and being stuck in your hotel. What effect is is this having on Chinese manufacturing and general production in the company in the country? It's having, well, broadly speaking, it's having an effect, uh, you know, on the economy. They were aiming for around 5.5% GDP growth this year. Economists think that's going to be closer to 3%. Uh, There's other things going on. It's not just the dynamic zero, but what dynamic zero does is it's, it's making it harder for, uh, for factories to plan ahead, to uh, to have logistics run smoothly from one province to, a ne- to the next, you know, shipping product out or shipping in raw materials to produce goods. Um, so in that respect, you know, it's having a big problem. I mean, again, you mentioned earlier the Foxconn factory in Zhengzhou. Uh, what they were doing is what's called a closed loop system where they've convinced all the workers to basically stay on site. Uh, other factories are doing this too. Smaller factories don't have the ability, don't have the luxury to be able to do this. Uh, and so, you know, it's 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 making making the gears of production, the gears of the economy just a little bit harder to turn, a little bit more gummed up.
John, thank you so much for giving us the very latest on what's going on in China. We appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Look forward to talking with you again soon. That's John Ruich, who is NPR's China Affairs Correspondent. Joining us on AirTalk on KPCC coming up, we'll talk about big changes that appear to be coming to law schools, with many of them, including local ones, dropping out of the U.S. News and World Report rankings, which have been sacrosanct for law schools, and also the Bar Association dropping the LSAT requirement for admission. That's coming up as well here on Air Talk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at Theatricum.com. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lumert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. We have big news coming out of the area of legal education in the United States. First of all, a panel of the American Bar Association, their accreditation arm, has decided just in the past few days to eliminate the requirement that law school applicants have an admissions test score. Now, typically students have taken the LSAT, known as the Law School Admission Test, and the Graduate Record Examination, or GRE. Those are seen as valid and reliable tests under uh, Standard 503 of the ABA. So, but for students entering in the year 2026 and 2027, the new rules will take effect, uh, allowing it to be optional for the law schools that choose that. Also, the U.S. News and World Report rankings of law schools have been shaken up considerably when Yale, which has been, for the past several years, the top-ranked institution uh, chose to uh, drop being uh, a part of the rankings, not submit its information to U.S. News to be ranked. And a number of other law schools, uh, like UCLA, have followed suit. Joining us to talk about both of these issues is William Adams, Jr., Managing Director of the American Bar Association Section of Legal Education and Admissions. Uh, Bill, thank you very much for being with us. Let's talk first about about the dropping of the LSAT. I find this so interesting as my son is going through the law school admissions process right now and has just applied uh, to a number of law schools and just getting some acceptances. So this particularly exciting topic in our in our household. Um, so share with us about, you know, the LSAT. Why, why make this optional? So thank you for inviting me. And uh the ABA has been the only accreditor for several years that has actually required that uh, applicants take a standardized test. So uh, the Council for, uh, for Legal Education, which is the accrediting part of the ABA, decided that in part because of that, also in part because the Council has been moving towards focusing on outcomes, and that is your graduation rates and bar passage rates of your graduates and focusing less on inputs and giving schools more flexibility so that they can make their own choices as to their curriculum and also as to whom to admit 
in order to have successful graduation and bar passage rates. Now, I thought that the LSAT was was typically considered the best predictor of success in law school. That doesn't necessarily mean the person's going to be the best attorney, but that at least for law school performance, I thought the LSAT far more than the GPA or other factors were predictive of that. So it it is a better predictor. However, it is an imperfect predictor. And I want to emphasize that uh, with the new standard, schools can still use the LSAT, and the ABA is not saying to stop using the LSAT, but it is an imperfect predictor, and it has disparate results amongst racial groups. So African-Americans and Latinx persons as a group score less well. So there may be other ways to decide upon admissions for some applicants that will allow people who are currently not able to go to law school because of their standardized test score who would be capable, however, of becoming good attorneys. And so this will give schools the opportunity to use some alternative admission sort of policies for some of the students they admit to try to counteract some of this racial disparity in the standardized test scores. We're talking with William Adams, Jr., Managing Director of the American Bar Association Section of Legal Education and Admissions. Also with us, the President and Dean of the California Western School of Law in San Diego, Sean Scott. Uh, President Dean Scott, thank you so much for for being with us. Um, What is your law school planning to do with the ABA uh, in the future not requiring the use of the LSAT? Mm-hmm. And well, first, thank you so much uh, for having me. And I also want to say that it's always a pleasure to be in conversation with Bill, for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect. So thank you for um, for inviting me to participate in this conversation. We don't yet know what we're going to do here at California Western. I actually am a strong proponent of keeping the LSAT. I appreciate the time uh, that the ABA is going to give us to phase in this new requirement. Um, I think it does give us an opportunity to um, dis- to think about um, alternatives, but I am very, very concerned about um, a return to what I call legacy admissions policies uh, and the use of, of uh, more subjective criteria and uh, the elevation of um, things like the prestige of the undergraduate institution letters of recommendation from high-profile alums, pressure from donors, um, all that can be used to um, as a substitute for uh, the more objective LSAT measure. Uh, it's so interesting you bring this up. I have someone that uh, I, I know very well who went to not a top-ranked university, was a good, not a great student, went out, worked in the world, studied for the LSAT completely on his own, got a dynamite LSAT score, and was admitted to Harvard Law and is you know now practicing law as graduate. This is someone who, without the LSAT, I, because of of the university and and I'm not sure you know that they would have gotten a, a look from a prestigious school like that sort of underscoring the point you're making I think that's right and I and I do think I do have to acknowledge that I think law schools largely for US news reasons have over relied on the test and that does create barriers for uh, folks from racially and socially uh, social economically disadvantaged communities. But I also think it's important to point out that the test was originally designed by law professors and deans to address this uh, system of legacy admission and to inject some objective measure of competence um, and thus allowing access to those of us who come from marginalized communities to uh, to access law schools and the legal profession generally. So I'm a little bit concerned about uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Love to hear from our listeners who are attorneys, went to law school. What do you think about this? Do you think that schools, now that the ABA is in the future going to make this optional, should drop the LSAT as a requirement for the admissions process or not? We're at 866-893-KPC. 
CCC, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. Bill, uh, your response to what uh, President Scott was just saying. So she, I think, articulates a legitimate concern, but I I believe that um, persons like Dean Scott, there are many deans at at, at our law schools who are very concerned about diversity, and I think they would be hesitant to um, go to factors that inappropriately advantage persons of privilege. And so I trust that most of our schools wouldn't do that. And it's better for us, I think, to address the schools that would start using factors that we would consider problematic rather than having a rule that prevents anybody from using any sort of alternative. I mean, there are alternative admissions programs out there that better predict success in law school, and a number of law schools have those. We, in fact, there's one um, out of, that has 26 law schools participate. Under the current standard, those applicants needlessly have to take the, co- the, the LSAT, and that's a cost and inconvenience that they shouldn't be forced to do. We will, as in this two-year period, talk to schools about what are your changes going to be, and if we see schools that are making choices that we think will disadvantage um, underrepresented groups, we'll talk to those schools. And that's better than dealing with those schools that we think are making bad choices as opposed to a, a rule that prevents anyone from trying to do something innovative and, and find applicants who are currently being wrongfully denied from going to law school. Brent in Santa Monica says not requiring the LSAT is idiotic and counterproductive. If you can't do well on the LSAT, it's highly unlikely you'll pass the California bar. Bill, you want to respond to that? I think I think that's wrong because I, like I said, there are alternative admissions programs. I administered one when I was a law professor, and the persons who were in that program had LSAT scores that people would say, "Well, this person doesn't have much chance of succeeding," but Every year, there were people who got through that program and succeeded in law school. We always had some of them who performed at the very top of their class and became very fine lawyers. And what this new standard allows is for schools to use some of those programs and not force those persons to take the LSAT. Once again, we're not saying schools shouldn't use it or they should drop it entirely. It just gives schools some flexibility, and many schools want that flexibility and have programs that will be able to admit students whose LSAT predictors might indicate that they couldn't succeed. Era in Glendale says, I'm an attorney. The LSAT was my second shot at getting into law school because my GPA wasn't high. That's Era in Glendale. I want to thank our guests for joining us and talking about uh, the uh, LSAT becoming optional according to the ABA's um, uh, requirements for law schools that have a ABA uh, certification. Bill Adams with us. Uh, of the ABA and Sean Scott, the president dean of California Western School of Law in San Diego. And we'll have to take up the uh, U.S. News and World Report legal rankings at a future time. But thank you for being with us. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We appreciate your support so much on this Giving Tuesday. And one of the things that living in Southern California provides are just wonderful neighborhoods, each so distinct, whether it's architecturally, whether it's the restaurants, uh, whether it's the background of the residents coming from different parts of the world. We are so fortunate to live with an abundance of interesting places here in Southern California. And I remind myself when I'm stuck in traffic and getting frustrated about how long it takes to get around the area, that the flip side of that uh, is this incredible range of people and places that have a very distinct
distinct sense of themselves. And one of them that we have just highlighted at LAS.com is that neighborhood of Angelino Heights. If you've not been there, it's right between Chinatown and Echo Park. And as the name implies, 500 feet above downtown with spectacular views of the city. But there are also great views from the streets themselves of just gorgeous architecture. And with us, producer of How to L.A. and L.A.'s Studios podcast about the city and people of Los Angeles, Megan Botel. Megan, thank you for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So share with us what excited you about telling the story of Angelino Heights. Well, the character in the story, Andrea Martinez-Gonzalez, is so unique in that she has lived in the same house in Angelino Heights her entire life. It's how she grew up in. Her grandmother bought it in the 60s. So she's had this really uh, unique perspective of being in the same place and watching this incredible place go through so many changes. And uh, the the I inherited this tape from a previous producer, and this article was born out of a How to LA podcast episode. We do uh, a neighborhood series, basically, where we're profiling different neighborhoods. One of the things that we do in How to L.A. is connect people to new places or help them understand. Did Boyle Heights, for example? We did West Adams and Little Tokyo as the oh, first I'm two. Oh, I'm sorry, West Adams. Yeah, yeah. Heights. And then, so now Angelino Heights. Um, and we're always looking for more. So if anybody wants to submit uh, um for, for us to profile them or go to their neighborhood, you can um, submit. We have a link on the Angelino Heights um, article. And so that's how we got in contact with Andrea. And she just has such this wonderful voice. She's been through so much in this um, neighborhood, and she is just uh, a wealth of knowledge. And so we got the whole history through her eyes from her grandparents migrating from Mexico in the early 1900s, right after the Mexican Revolution, to her parent, her grandparents buying the home that she now lives in in the 60s and just all the different phases, especially in the last 10 years, the kind of like hipster <laughs> movement um, that has spilled over from Echo Park. And she um, she just embraces it all. One of the great things about Angelino Heights, you know, so many of the communities of L.A. and, and Frank, you know, this longtime resident that, um, you know, these large houses that when it really didn't become economically feasible to keep them as single family homes were divided into units and became multifamily dwellings. In Angelino Heights, you've got so many of those houses that have stayed intact as as single-family entities. And the extraordinary, you know, the Victorian-era gingerbread of the architecture just and bright colors that those kinds of houses um, are, are painted in uh, made it a really, really beautiful community. Let me open it up to listeners. You want to talk about Angelino Heights. Uh, I love driving along Carroll Avenue, seeing all the great houses and, as Megan just said, the wonderful views from that neighborhood. 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and your first name. Uh, also joining us um, is Nicole Thompson, who's a volunteer at the L.A. Conservancy, to join us to talk about it. Nicole, thanks so much. I described this earlier in the program as that Angelino Heights is kind of like a living museum, isn't it? Absolutely true. It's a little uh, spot of history, almost in amber, almost in amber. <laughs> Except it is a dynamic community. What, so you give tours uh, of Angelino Heights. What are some of the things you point out? Well, what we like to do with the L.A. Conservancy is is have people understand that LA is a growing entity and we're very lucky with Angelino Heights that we do have a segment of time and architecture in such a scale that we don't have in any other place in Los Angeles. So the need to preserve it and the need to educate people on LA is a growing city and, and we don't always maintain our cultural and architectural styles so well and that's what angelino heights brings to us is that sort of preservation of architectural style in a time of of past uh, romantic history 
What enabled, if you know the answer to this, Angelino Heights to stay so relatively undisturbed and unaltered? That's what amazes me about that neighborhood, you know, Bunker Hill throughout its life until that community was raised for the music center and redevelopment. Those houses had been altered a lot. uh, And these are such gems. What I understand is that the whole neighborhood itself is is quite supportive of each other. Also, we had a group of residents that moved in in the 70s and started realizing, hey, we don't coalesce our efforts to save our homes. Someone's going to come in and tear them down. So it was a local a local group of people called the Carol. Uh, the CARF and it was Carroll Avenue, Avenue Residence Foundation and they started pestering City Hall to help them preserve that area and, and set aside restrictions on developments. And that's how we got the historic preservation overlay zones in Los Angeles that you see everywhere. And Angelino Heights was the first. Really? Okay. So that that shows you the power of those in protecting the architecture of a of a community like that. And of course, one of the nice things in a city like L.A. is it brings that sort of common uh, mission of the neighbors all seeking to preserve what they've got in their community, which is a which is a wonderful thing. Uh, there are a lot of demand for for tours, Nicole, of of Angelino Heights. Yes, it's it's well, since the pandemic uh, kept us from having our tours, uh, it is the one that sells out more often than not. We only give it once a month and to to help the residents appreciate people standing on the sidewalk looking at their homes. <laughs> but uh we we do sell that one out often. All right. Nicole, thank you so much. We really appreciate your talking about a neighborhood that you obviously love and lead tours of regularly. Nicole Thompson, volunteer at the L.A. Conservancy nonprofit. And if you're interested in any of those tours that they give, they have incredible walking tours, uh, not just uh, in that community, but others. You can go to the website of the L.A. Conservancy. And Megan Botel, thanks so much. How to L.A. producer, we appreciate it. I'd like to nominate where I grew up Beachwood Canyon in the Hollywood we'll Hills. Incredible history. Uh, very artsy, uh, bohemian background, uh, early film people there, and uh, quite a community. Oh, he sold us. All right. Thanks so much. That's Megan Botel uh, of How to LA, the LA Studios podcast, talking about the historic neighborhood of Angelino Heights in the city of Los Angeles. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.